0: Hey, good morning to all my listeners and viewers. Uh, Welcome to the next edition of Slaves to the Algo, my podcast on how to stay relevant in the age of AI. And I'm delighted to have with me today, as a guest speaker, T.S. Anil, the Group CEO of Monzo Bank. T.S. is a man who has spent a long life in financial services, but has constantly reinvented himself in those times, starting with being a conventional consumer banker, and then moving on to working in payment networks and global roles, and now in a digital bank. Welcome to the show, T.S. Great to
1: be here, Suresh. Thanks for having me. And that's the last time we talk about the fact that I've been a long time anything.
0: <laughs> well, you look young still, so I think that, but but you have been. You are, um, your looks belie, I think, the long experience that you have in financial services and you've seen the evolution. T.S., how would you describe yourself, I mean? are you would you still call yourself a banker? What's your it's
1: interesting uh you know that question about are you a banker or are you a tech startup person is actually a false binary, and you know we talk about that a fair amount at Monzo that you know this it's i I think it's the false binary because we are both right we need to, we succeed because we are both and i so I think of myself as really straddling straddling those universes and trying to bring the best of both to the work I do and and so on. So my identity, though, is not wrapped up in in either one of those things. It's it's something that sort of sits meta and beyond beyond both those things.
0: And I like the way that in a program on AI, you're talking about a false binary. So in fact, that's one of the things that I'll talk to you about a little bit about how these two worlds are literally colliding in many ways. Um, but, you know, uh, TS, I think one of the big things that we are trying to do in this uh, program is to demystify the age of the algorithm, as we call it. And one of the things out here is that in many ways, lots of different small and big ways, algorithms are taking over both our personal and our professional lives. And off the bat, if I asked you, you know, I, as a consumer and as a business professional to describe two or three kind of really great examples of how uh, this has kind of changed our whole life, you know, things that are running our lives and we don't know about it, what would they be?
1: Look at a personal level, the examples abound, right? And we've just learned to take many of those for granted, right? Our social feeds, our shopping recommendations, our travel recommendations, uh, and, you know, books I read. So the, the fact that the, the choice is presented to me with this illusion of free choice all the time, always tend, you know, it's in every aspect of it. So I think we see that all the time. My favorite example though, of an algorithm which I beat um is music? So I tend to have uh, to listen to very, very different genres of music. and I have to say that uh, none of the music feeds I have on you know Apple Music or Spotify or anything have quite therefore cracked that. so i'm so I am surprised over there, and it's not a reinforcing uh, music taste uh, sort of recommendations, which is which is fun for me. So I feel personally gratified that there's at least one algorithm that I appear to be beating
0: that's interesting and you know uh, you'll use a couple of interesting thoughts already into that you talked about the illusion of free choice and in some ways isn't that what um and you know the perfect algo is trying to do it's trying to give you the illusion that your choice is free but in reality it's taking the choice away from you and um you know and then you talked about how you're not actually finding uh the perfect choice we keep talking you know in our company about how spotify is um, almost like you know, always finds you great experiences. So it's, it's interesting. Why do you think that they're not able to find that? I mean, they obviously have a lot of data about you.
1: No, I actually enjoy the experience. I think what I'm saying is that I, I'm gratified that I'm not easy to pigeonhole in terms of taste in music. So I'm gratified that the consequence of that is that I'm not getting only one genre, to use a bad pun, amplified. That I'm not getting only once one type of music amplified for me because I listen to a broad range. But there are other aspects of my life where, you know, I have a clear preference. And because of which there the risk is that it's that preference that gets, you know, that gets reinforced every single time I'm in an experience.
0: And I'm just delving a little bit deeper into that, right? You're saying you're you're listening to multiple genres in music. And this is true in practically every category, but I think this is a great example, right? You know, sometimes you want to listen to classical music or jazz and sometimes it's your old rock you know rock music from college days or something so what is it that's happening out here is it that these guys don't have enough data or that your your tastes are so eclectic or that are you choosing to beat the algo as an individual consumer
1: no so that's an example but I'm aware I'm not trying I think that I think that it might just be that the tastes cut across very different genres like as you said you know obviously all of the classic rock we grew up on but there's lots of different flavors of world music that interest me and so on. So it is, I think, the fact that it cuts across very many different kinds of music, that it becomes hard to pigeonhole me as the type that's living in his college classic rock warp or the person that's only into classical music or only into African music or whatever else, right? So it's 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 happening without effort. And I kind of like, I you know, I like that. So, but who knows, this, this may be my personal illusion, Suresh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but it's a, but it's no it's, it's it's quite fascinating, right? Because I mean, I think you know all algos are trying to get us all get to into some detail and know you as an individual. And clearly, what you're talking about is an area where the data is available. You are a, You are a person of eclectic taste, and it's still not quite able to pin you down. Does that talk to the limitation of the of the algo maker, the people behind it, or I had another interesting guest on the show who said you know, some of the problems that Google can solve, they don't solve because of the business model they follow, where they want to show you the ad. It's not that they can't find the right thing. So do you think there's an example of the business model preventing you from getting the right music or? No, 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 So
1: not at all actually. I think think the capability exists to be able to uh, classify me, the business model exists certainly to reinforce that and monetize it. and who knows, Suresh, this may well just be, a you know, I may well be actually in a pigeonhole category of people that like multiple genres, right? And therefore, my that's, that, that's what I meant when I said that maybe it's my personal illusion that I'm not getting pigeonholed because there is a pigeonhole that says eclectic probably.
0: Okay, we've got to find this elusive pigeonhole and, you know, I'm sure <laughs> that's a challenge for your Spotify and Apple Music. Find the tests of the group CEO of Monzo. Give him a better list out here. But um, moving from uh, from your personal thing to your business life, Fred. I mean, you know, I think um, in 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 financial services, we've long used data to make decisions. Um, Can you tell us how the use of you know algorithms and you know algorithms is a fancy word for? Something that, if you remember, I think when we are all starting off our careers, people would come back with a big list, printed list of you'd give six criteria, and someone would come back with a printed list of people who meet that criteria. So, how has it actually changed over the twenty odd years that you've been in that? You've been in a traditional consumer bank, then you've been in a global payments network. Now you're in a fully digital, uh, you know, tech startup bank. So, how has it changed over these years in terms of your business life?
1: Sure. So, look, I think. Uh... So I've had, you know, been blessed to have some really interesting uh, professional experiences. And, you know, about 20 years ago, I worked at Capital One in the US, which at the time was really the bleeding edge of bringing analytics, not into the business, but building a whole business based on the analytical underpinning. Right. Uh, You had a whole organization of people that spoke in you know, logarithmic regression models at the time and spreadsheets, right? All the way up to C, the CEO would present in, in, in Excel. I,
0: I remember Richard Fairbanks had a great talk in one of those things about how the company was built on data.
1: Yeah, so I got to see a bunch of uh, stuff that was really bleeding edge at the time. I think what's changed in that arc of the, the you know two or three decades there is a few things. One is the automation is a really big deal. So... Like you, I remember when you, you know, these dot dot matrix printers would print out reams and reams of customer names based on something, you know, some a few criteria that you threw at it, and that SQL would result in a set of names that would then be manually fed to a telemarketer or whatever else you were doing with it at the time. And obviously, automation of all of that stuff is a pretty big deal, right? Um, And just makes things productionized at um, uh, you know, at a very different uh, level. I think the second sort of arc across that is the instantaneity of it, of the whole thing, right? Which is so the lag between seeing a behavior and prompting an action, either for the company to take or for the individual to take, that gap has has shrunk as well as you know, as smartphones and everything else have made the the instant aspect of things very different. So the so the uh, the ability to react materially different um, and then you know beyond that we can talk about this some more in terms of um, where this is going and the way that this starts to get you know scary but all of this happening at scale is transformative for the world of business so what what the other thing that I would talk to you know in terms of what's changed in that arc is, the, is everybody sort of catching up in the sense that so we're like, you know, I give the Capcom example from 20 years ago, but that's par for the course now, right? Back then, mm-hmm. like, we used to pride ourselves on the fact that when a customer called into a call center, using caller ID, which was already a thing, even on landlines at the time, using caller ID, you could stream the call into, is it going to be a retention call or is it going to be a collections call? Or is it going to be you know, what, what, what the main li- likely reason for the customer calling is? So, but stuff like that in the last 20 years, I think the whole world is caught up to those capabilities. So that's the other thing, right? So you're seeing both catch-ups geographically and industries and kinds of companies in the industries, but you're also seeing people leapfrogging, right? People people building towards uh, new capabilities because they're starting out with that without legacy to migrate.
0: So, so that's it, yeah. interesting, right? You talked about the fact that it's automated, it's instantaneous, it's become uh, you know industrialized in terms of scale, and you're talking about the fact that it's democratized. But um, I guess one of the questions that you have is, you know, HBR had this recent thing called the age of relevance that we're entering, age of relevance. But yet, when you look at it in the financial services industry, uh, we ran this survey for about 100 banks and how relevant they are in terms of we developed something called relevance quotient. Most people don't think of the bank as being relevant or actually being able to do things for them. What is the gap? Because it's clearly not technology anymore, and you said it's available to everybody. So why is it that banks are kind of struggling to stay relevant, uh, and 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 clearly the digital banks are trying to come in with a very tech-focused way to try to do this. So what's that? What's that thing that's stopping people?
1: So having already established that I that I've spent many years in the world of, as you call it, traditional banking. Although I have to say, none of the banks that I worked in at the time thought they were traditional banks, right? That's the irony of it. True. Um, But, you know, so you're going to cost me a lot of friends with with whatever I say over (laughs) here, or I'm going to be buying makeup drinks for lots of friends. Um, Same friends, Anil. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing. I think, uh, I said technology is not a barrier because everybody has access to it. But that is, but having access to technology and being able to leverage it are different things right um, you know they say god built the world in seven days because he had no legacy to start with and that's true right if you're if you're working off of a legacy platform it's really hard to embed new capability in it without massive amounts of change control expenses and you know back uh, back testing to make sure that everything works so it's not it's not easy to start with legacy, and then try and execute the capabilities that are there. And that alone makes a, a pretty significant difference in how people leverage data. Um, so you're seeing the impact of that when you look at any incumbent industry and and you know the challenger segment within the industry. Um, and I think for us, uh, you know, happy to talk more about uh, the way I think about it or the way you know what and stuff that we're doing at Monzo. I think we're able to start with the end. Right And not have to incrementalize our way to an outcome. and that's a pretty big difference, I think, because we don't need so you can leverage the best of technology as it exists today. and in fact, you can probably call where it's going somewhat and build towards that end state right off the bat. which so is a pretty big difference.
0: and And could you give us a couple of examples of that? I mean, how you know you're doing it, it's designed data first, it's completely designed. it's like you know it's like you've got created a bank today, right and that's what Monzo is trying to be. Uh, yeah, so- if
1: it, well, like, lots of examples, right? We'll give you a simple sort of user-facing example. Uh, we're not putting an app in front of a, in front of an analog bank, right? We're a digital bank by design. And, you know, people call it digital first, mobile first, things like that. So all of those are phrases which all capture the same thing, that you're building for that, you, that world first, and that's what it's optimized for. And almost anything else is an afterthought. Right And the same thing when you think about a data platform or a data infrastructure or anything, you're starting with what the end state ought to look like and what you want to be able to do with it.
0: And that leapfrogging, I think is pretty profound mm-hmm. And uh, from an algorithmic or a data perspective, are you are you guys in Monzo kind of saying the kind of data that you capture about customers is different or how you? I mean, going back to your own uh, pigeonhole Spotify example, are you trying to pigeonhole customers differently in terms of what they might be? Uh, could you give? I mean, nothing that's confidential, but any examples so, of how you guys are using data and algos differently?
1: Look, I mean, nothing that really bears sort of spotlighting in and of itself. So, as a as a data use example, and we're not we're certainly not capturing more or different data on our customers than you know most other players probably are, I think the, you know, this gets to where this whole thing starts to become more interesting as we look at the future, where from our perspective, being a mission oriented bank and say, you know, and sort of defining ourselves by our mission of trying to make money work for everyone. It's about making tools available to customers to help them manage their money better. Mm-hmm. Even in saying those words, you get the layer that that's in there of trying to build what is good for customers. Now, which, which is which is incredibly hard because you're, what you're trying to do there is to give them the tools that help them save better. But who's to say how much someone should save, right? You're giving them the tools to manage credit better, right? Who's to say what the manage credit better mean to individuals? So you have to create the right tools and embed the data in it to help them make good choices, and you know you the, the goal is to try and get you know help them manage it in a way that is beneficial for them. and which starts to layer in there for choices about you know how much should people save? How would you indicate to someone you know what, what's the right amount of saving? And those th- things start to become really interesting uh, questions, and you know it layers in the, the, that who gets to make that decision question that who gets to steer it, right? There's some fascinating work uh, that, you know, you're obviously across, I'm sure, Suresh, right? By behavioral scientists and behavioral economists like Richard Taylor, right? Whose book Nudge is amazing, right? Because it talks about how you can nudge people into what's, you know, better choices, whether it's better health choices. Hmm. And in his example, uh, you know, one of the early examples he uses in his work is this idea that how you present choices to school kids in the school cafeteria makes them choose healthier options or unhealthy options. It is still free choice. They're still choosing exactly what they're doing. They're not not removing stuff off the menu. That is just Mm -hmm. how it's presented. So it's a fascinating space and it starts to get really tricky when you uh, layer in who gets to make the decision question.
0: And you know, Fascinating. You talked about behavioral economics. I mean, the entire thing, you know, in in Crayon, we started it. Is to, we went back to this whole idea of choice and said, you know, when you have so many choices, how do you actually bring it together and um, send me your Spotify playlist, uh, TS. I've got to, I've got to find a way to get you your pigeonhole in music. That's one thing that we do. But one of the interesting things that we did is that we looked at this guy called Chialdini who wrote this book called The Power of Influence. And he talks about how when you provide reasoning, like when you say, because I'm recommending something to you, because of that, how Consumers tend to respond differently, and um, so is that the kind of thing that you're trying to add, Monza? I mean, the whole idea that you know, as a consumer, if you're given the right information with the right reasoning, you should be able to. You know, you're kind of almost democratizing the way the financial choices are being made. Is that the kind of intent? That's the intent, and it's you know, we're just
1: getting started. So plenty, plenty to be done, plenty to be grappled with in terms of both building out the right set of capabilities, but also. You know all of the normative choices that you, you, know, you sort of laid out even in what you said. But yeah, our goal is to make the tools available to customers to help them make choices that are best for them.
0: And again, it's so fascinating that we started off with Spotify and your music. And I'm coming back to the theme only because if you looked at it in the old days, you just had to buy an album that the record company, legacy company said, this is the way even the greatest hits is compiled. Yeah. And now when you design digital first, you're allowed to basically create your own kind of music for whatever time that you do. And I guess that's what you're trying to do. But I'm kind of switching gears a little bit, right? You worked again you in know, in, in large banks and a global payment network, and now you're in a digital bank. Are the people around you when you walk into a meeting, are they different? Are the profiles of those people different? How does a, 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 a digital first bank look in terms of the people? Are they younger? Are they different? Are they more data savvy? Yes, yeah, so Yes, yes to all of those last few questions for
1: sure. Right, because as I said, we straddle the world of tech startups and digital banking. So for sure, that there's you know there's a whole different generation of people that have grown up into the digital world, and who think digital first, not as a thing to do, but it just because that's the way they're wired. So you, and you encounter wickedly bright people of every generation. But right? I've always felt that way uh, you know in the jobs I've done, has been the funnest has been to work with the best the best people of a generation, and I think the difference is, uh, I mean, for at least for me, the most energizing part of any place I've ever worked in, and Monzo is certainly a great example of that, is working with learners and not the learned, right? Because given the pace at which change is happening, it's most fun when you're not working just with people that are already expert in something, but are learners in a way that they're shaping the future because they're trying to figure it out as we, as we go. And I think those, that's, that's
0: where the eventual edge kicks in. That's such a wonderful phrase and I'm just going to borrow it wholesale. I mean, no, oh, it's not working with learners oh, and not the learned, but it's such a wonderful way to describe it because I guess the question is when you walk into the room there and you're actually dealing with these people, are they, you know, somebody like you who's, you know, probably both a learner and a learned, are they kind of not overawed? They, they don't seem to be overawed by the fact that you have 20 years of experience, you know, how payments has evolved. They think very differently. And for the benefit of people listening, what's that kind of thing look like to you? What do you feel like when you're with a 25-year-old guy who says, you know, who talks very differently, who says, here's what the data shows. I get that all the time. So I'm wondering whether you do.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I love it, right? I love I love the challenge of that. I love the fact that in in a particular debate, it's less about you know, everything that led up to that moment in a room. And it's about what you're looking at in that room. So the, that, you know, and Capital One was like that as well, all the way back 20 years ago, where, you know, the truth seeking aspect of it, that right, uh, was the most energizing, right? The fact that the answer was in the data, right? We could have points of view, but if you if you interrogated the data sufficiently, the truth lay within the data, right? And I think that that was energizing in, in the, digital banking, Monzo context, as you're asking me now, it's that same sort of idea that you debate the merits of something. And, you know, there isn't a, a discounting of uh, experience or previous knowledge. It's an input, right? So you, how do you leverage that best to create the right answer? But if you don't interrogate it, you'll never reinvent an industry. That if you don't interrogate, uh, you know, tribal beliefs or the way things have been done, you don't you don't create the future. So balancing those two things is an incredible, uh, you know, incredible challenge. So don't want to make it seem like uh, you know it's a, sort of you wish it and suddenly you're doing it, right? So it's it's an everyday challenge. And I think for me to, to answer your question about what is my personal experience like, it's a ton of fun because I'm learning, right? And I love love that aspect of uh, of my work.
0: And and when you look back at these things, right? I mean, you know, when you look back at what you're doing with Bonzo and let's say a traditional you know, consumer bank that's putting an app in front of a, you know, a legacy analog model. Um, I I guess one of the things that I'm doing is what is it that holds back, you know, we talked about the fact that technology and legacy platforms is one thing. Um, The two the people obviously are different, right? I mean, you're getting people without necessarily a whole bunch of um, legacy mindsets and thinking, and that's probably a second one. And third is we're talking about the data and the technology. So, I mean, clearly the data and the technology is available. So it's really about the first two. So between the legacy technology and the legacy mindset, which do you think is possibly the thing that, I mean, let's say, I'm not suggesting you well, if you went back to a traditional bank, what would you think, what would be the first thing that you'd go and tell the people there to think differently about?
1: Gosh, where do I start? Um, it's, it's all of those things, uh, Suresh, right? I wouldn't sequence it. Uh, legacy tech is not trivial because to change that, right? To operate in a completely microservice architecture environment, you have to start and build that afresh, right? To be able to configure product and build product at pace and do all of the stuff that is possible today, right? So you have to build that at pace. So, so if if you were anchored on legacy tech, internet be hard. Um, the legacy mindset piece is an interesting one because, you know, most people, don't come in thinking they have a legacy mindset interesting right? we're all inhabiting a digital world and for each one of us the you know the belief is of course i'm progressive of course i'm at the cutting edge of data look at all the things i do with my life in my in my personal life that are entirely digital and data driven so you know but and yet all of us have blind spots right i am certain i have a long laundry list of blind spots um, as well so i think it's So legacy mindset as an institution is the harder thing than at an individual level, right? How do you institutionally create the right amount of challenge in it? How do you institutionally think about, you know, uh, making sure that you're challenging beliefs and coming up with the best possible answers each time, right? How do you institutionally be truth-seeking? Those are harder than at an individual level because, you know, if I guarantee you, you know, you parade 10 people of any profile and ask them to grade themselves, Uh, you know, other than my mom, who was by her own admission, doesn't like this whole technology thing so much. (laughs) There's a few exceptions like that, but almost everybody else will believe that they're at the bleeding edge. True.
0: And um, I guess um, do you think that given this, you know, again, I like the distinction you made between the, that individuals like to think of ourselves as being progressive, and we probably are, and the environment sometimes is the part that's got the legacy, the institutions have the legacy, rather than the individuals uh now given this given this thing and i'm just going to assume that the legacy process and technology uh it, it is hard and the legacy of the institution in the way they think is hard to kind of get over do you think a traditional bank or i'm even moving away from banking a traditional airline do you think an airline or a hotel you know when travel comes back can compete against the the expedias and the uh, googles of the world and travel do you think a traditional bank will eventually be able to um, Compete against the Monzos um, and the Revoluts of the world, um, or do you think that um, this is a you know like has happened in tech in the in the world of consumer technology? Do you think that the gap is only going to widen?
1: Yeah. So you know, there's two, three different things in what you said, right? In the Expedia example that you gave, right? So if I look at that, the theme in that question is the people that are intermediating choice, um, right, or the distributors of of services and products. I think that game will go, in my view, to the digital first Mm -hmm. players, Because they they just have so much more data to firstly even present you a set of choices Mm -hmm. and then to help customize it uh, for individuals and do it at scale. So I think that game uh, will go there. I think the question is, what are they selling? And so to your point about hotels and, and airlines and so on, that's the eventual product being sold, or the service that is being sold, and you know, in those particular examples, that's a very analog experience, like as it should be, right? When you're that that moment that takes your breath away when you're, you know, in a beautiful hotel with an amazing view and having a great experience, that is inherently analog. And you know, we as a gen, you know, as a sort of species, we we'll continue to crave mm-hmm. the authenticity and sort of subliminal aspect of those experiences. So, So the question is what informs the creation of that experience and in what ways do you understand data to help build stuff that people value and like? And I think that the jury is out, right? There's lots of people who will do it instinctively. There are lots of people that will mine large amounts of data. uh, And there'll be lots of people that just, you know, shape the future because they make a leap that's not based on saying customers are ready for a smartphone that that's essentially a computer in your hand, that there'll just be a leap that, someone incredibly smart and visionary is able to
0: make. I think one of the things that we're seeing, T.S., um, uh, is this whole, um, you know, how does the value chain economically go? And if you take the, the, the hotel industry, for example, I, buy a, I book a hotel room through an aggregator like Expedia, I might pay $200. Expedia will probably make 30 bucks because they'll make a 15% commission. The hotel will be lucky after investing all the capital to make five or 10 bucks on that room. You see it yeah. in airlines and the same thing, right? I mean, the airline's got to buy the the, the yeah. asset, invest in the plane, put you know, do all of that stuff. And yet the aggregator who's just sitting in between and saying, I'm going to just bring the consumer to the intermediary is making a lot of the money in that. And what you're pointing out is something quite fascinating, which is that um, one game you're saying is going to go away towards that intermediary because they will have the benefit of scale. But the other game of differentiation and how you actually... Dif- to differentiate in the physical world is still something that you have to play with. If I bring that to banking, how do you see that playing out? What does that physical bank today have to do, as opposed to let's say a digital bank? I mean, how does that how does that analogy play out in the world of financial services?
1: I think it you know, at its core, the basic insight still remains, which is what is the customer experiencing and what. Tools of products or services are you making available to them to help them get about their life happily? Right, money is such a source of anxiety for people, and it's it's such a source of obsession. And yet, right, most people, the vast majority of this planet, doesn't have the tools to ma- to manage it effectively. So, um, if you start there and say, look, what what does what does it need to be? Right, what do you need to make make customers' lives easier? Then the answers about what's physical, what's digital start to sort of thin out very quickly. And that's almost not even uh, the, the question. It's going to be, how is that, what's the tool that, that you need to make available? And then the answer that, look, that tool is best made available in an intuitive digital way becomes clear. right? And so you go down that path that suggests that, look, therefore, digital bank that is really building with that in mind, is advantaged relative to a high street bank, which is expecting a customer to make the time during during business hours to walk to a branch and you know get you know either transact uh, you know um, some simple things that they want to do or seek advice, et cetera, et cetera. And then after all of that, they're hostage to the knowledge and the filters of the particular person they're engaging with. Right, so you compare all of those challenges versus what you think really needs to be made available to the customer, and you know it will tell you why digital models are are advantaged, right? And this is entirely separate from the obvious cost advantages, et cetera, et cetera. So just that alone is a big deal. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think we're living at at such a time of change, which is, which is my whole sort of learner's point, right? That there will be segments which will get attracted to the idea of High-touch, relationship-oriented stuff. Like I said, at the end of it all, as a species, we are going to crave, you know, that that authentic analog experience as the sort of end product of whatever path we're going down. So there will be segments that will have access to that, right? But the vast majority of the planet won't. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to say any particular thing, uh, any particular sector won't uh-huh. succeed. It's a question of how they succeed in this particular segment or needs they're going
0: after. It's kind of interesting that you're saying that because we're on the verge this week of the biggest IPO the world has ever seen. And you've lived in Asia long enough to know yeah. the impact of Ant Financial on um, just the it's world insane. of financial services, right? Yeah. And um, it's also interesting because your own bank, Monzo, has um, now actually become a fully regulated bank and I'll just give you a third thing. I mean, I remember Piyush Gupta, of DBS saying that if it walks like a bank and talks like a bank, it must be a bank. So regulate it like a bank. So what's the thing that I think one of the big advantages that the digital players, the ant financials and the monsters have had is that when they started off is that beyond tech and mindset, I think it was this whole thing of the ability to go out and do something in a very nimble way. And um, how's that going to change? I mean, how is regulation? And regulation is coming not just to this industry, you always worked in a regulated industry, but it's also coming, you know, like if you take the US, it's going to come to big tech as well. So where do you think regulation is going to step in to stop this, uh, perhaps take away this competitive advantage that data and tech is giving uh, companies today? So look, let
1: me answer the Monzo thing and then get to the broader part of your question. So as it relates to Monzo, we chose to be a regulated bank and we got, you know, we went through a licensing process early on. And we've operated as a fully regulated bank, and the you know the hypothesis was that, you know, you're trying to be the repository of customers' money and the trust that comes with being a bank versus playing on the fringes of the sector, right? Uh, we chose to be a bank and be inside the sector, reinvent the industry from within as a regulated mm-hmm. entity. So, and what that does mean for us is that we have really high standards to meet, right? regulatory con- standards of controls and risk management, et cetera, et cetera, the payoff of all of that is that therefore we earn the customer's trust that, look, that's who we are. Um, and, you know, of course, examples abound around the world of people that chose to not be a regulated entity to begin with, right? In whatever sector they were playing in, right? Not saying just in, in the world of banking and financial services, but eventually as you're saying, regulations caught up. I think, uh, you know, around the world that, that thing, that the regulators are paying more attention to it, learning what what business models are being crafted on the back of uh, digital and data, right? So that trend is is going to keep increasing. And, um, you know, without uh, sort of moving even past banking, just the world of technology in general is going to attract regulatory attention because regulators as, uh, you know, representative of uh, elected governments and so on are going to try to answer the question of is this good for society right? what's the unintended consequence that's being created how do we make how do we mitigate against that and that will happen along you know the obvious axes would get a lot of attention like competition and use of data and so on obviously there's a ton of regulation already in that space but it will probably go beyond because if you read the kinds of questions regulators are asking and what they're hoping to learn about businesses and business models um there's a a long list of things out there that I hope result in sensible regulation, because then that enables good innovation as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So TS, if you go back and I'm, I'm I'm sure we could keep talking for, you know, a few more hours on this topic. Um, I, I, I'm going to kind of, I picked up a few things. I'm also going to tell people, there's no false binary between my interest in consumer behavior and tech. Uh, But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, your fears. You're seeing, technology you're sitting in a place where technology the use of technology and data is exploding what are the fears that you have about how far this would go we've always had the we've had these complaints about fair lending and how algorithms tend to be biased etc but even beyond that what's your what are the algos that you you know fear today what are the things that you the yeah. trends that you worry about so look the i'll tell you the conditions of fear for me on this
1: stuff right um one is reinforcement of biases, especially re, especially reinforcement of biases that are less visible. I'll give you a simple example of that, right? Which mean, something I was reading the other day. Um, so, in clinical trials for new medicines and so on in the U.S. for new drug trials in the U.S., <coughs> there's been a really interesting history of regulation around clinical trials and the samples and people that are allowed to be a part of a clinical trial. There was actually regulation uh, in the 70s, which prohibited women of certain age groups in their best interests for being in, from being in clinical trials, right? which okay. at the time was, was uh, I, I think, architected intent and intended to be to protect women of childbearing age or whatever the definition of it was. But the result of that, think about the, the longer term consequences of drugs that would, that were rolled out and approved by, by drug regulators that had not actually been tested on a massive part of the population. And what does that suggest about the efficacy of that and how those, those drugs work? So that stuff has gotten unwound over, over the decades, but it was a thing. And, and that's an unintended consequence of, uh, of a decision that was explicitly made about a sample but it obviously mm-hmm. would have reinforced biases now you extend that and that's a, you know that's one sort of uh, specific example but the whole idea of reinforcement of biases which you know to your point about fair lending which clearly does uh, you know seeks to address that but the reinforcement of biases in a political context in a social context is something we are witnessing all around us right the polarization yes. that comes with people being in their respective echo chambers is scary so that's a, that's a big condition of fear for me the second is scale, because when stuff happens at scale, it also becomes much harder to contain, and it creates sort of a diaspora of consequences that you know you can't put that back in the bottle uh, later. Mm-hmm. So that 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 worries me as well. And then the third sort of aspect of this, uh, you know, condition of fear to answer, you know, to the question is. If it's across touch points in a way that there is nothing which questions those biases in a way that you figure out, right? So being in an echo chamber where you don't ever speak to someone that's outside of that, right? Because every touch point of your physical and digital life just reinforces those biases. That stuff is very scary to me. Um, I completely because, understand. You know, and
0: this whole idea of explainable AI is something that's coming about, right? Which is that you know. You understand the algo is doing its work, but you have to be able to explain it either to the regulator or to yeah. the consumer and say how you arrived at it. Um, in fact, one of the things that we basically are thinking about in our own company that this is going to become a thing that it's not about the fact that an AI took the decision, but the but you know what actually lies behind that. Yeah. And. Um, you know, it is a it is a, it is a a scary thing, but I do wanna, I mean, it's, it's not all about uh, fear alone, right? I mean, the fact is that data and AI has enabled a whole bunch of things to be done that wasn't possible uh, years ago. So what excites you about this field, you know, over the next two, three years? What are the big changes that you see that, you know, things that are gonna happen that wasn't possible two, three years ago?
1: I mean, so the biggest thing that excites me is also something that gives me a little bit of pause and concern, uh, right? Which is, as I was saying, Right, and we were talking about this behavioral scientists thing uh, a little while ago. Right, that it's possible to nudge people towards choices that could benefit them. Right, the problem is who decides. Right, and the problem is what happens when that tool is in the hands of a bad actor of any sort. Right, a bad actor could also, and doesn't even have to be a bad actor by design by intent, it could be just a bad actor in terms of how it's managed. And so that stuff starts to get uh, worrisome as well, but at the core of it, the idea that with this combination of crazy amounts of instant digital distribution mm-hmm. and intelligence to power the messages that you put out there, right, you could just as easily create a, a planet of amazing consequences, right? because you've reinforced messages that are good for humanity. Right. But just as easily, right? You're on the knife edge of, of that getting misused as well. But the power of, of it being used well excites me.
0: That is that is such a wonderful thought. In fact, I've always been wondering, right? I mean, we always talk about the consequences, for example, of using plastic bags or but if I never get a positive nudge for actually using my cloth bag. There you go. And, right. You know, you know, that's a it's the same thing really, but you know, no one ever is telling us, hey, if you did this. Thing, you would actually benefit the world and we're yeah. always hearing about the negative thing. TS uh, yes, any closing thoughts as you're going into this? I mean like I said you've seen uh, a variety of change over data and AI. Any single closing thought about how you think uh, maybe the next generation is going to be looking at this whole stuff? I mean we look at it wow but is it going to become such a part of everybody's life? Any closing thoughts at all on what mm-hmm. you see a world out
1: of this? yeah it is here to stay and i think my hope is that we have the right amount of sort of enlightened conversations about where it's going how do you correct biases how do you deal with you know who gets to make choices how do you create sensible regulation around the space and 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 so my hope is that those dialogues happen and are and those dialogues are are amplified so consumers understand uh, where things are going and are able to shape the macro choices right I love the the you know what you've talked about about you know explainable AI. So I love trends like that because it it's back to saying, look, it's not just providing the illusion of choice, but explanation for what sits behind it, and customers get to choose. I would love things like, you know, back to my music selection thing. If I said, look, in my recommendations, I want 30% of stuff to be randomized just because I want to be exposed to something different than what you think my pigeonhole is, I'd love that to be parameterized in ways that that expose me to stuff political views right i love that i have a diverse set of friends so i hear different views but maybe i may but maybe i don't that maybe i need to have to hear other views as well so if, if we are able to provide tools that give people the ability to see beyond beyond what the ai bots recommendation is to them and you know make it explainable make it more enlightened i think yeah this could, this could be amazing
0: You know, it's so funny you mentioned the thing about parameterizing because one of the things we try and do in our thing is that we say we want to set this to be at least 60% discovery versus, you know, 40% repeat, right? And um, it is parameterizable in some ways. And uh, that's such a lovely thought to end on. But I have a question, which is going back to the title of what I call this. Uh, I deliberately choose to call this uh, series Slaves to the Algo because I said, you know, algos are taking over our lives and we don't even know it. Do you foresee a future in five years or 10 years? time if you were to fast forward and have this conversation, um, do you foresee that we will be slaves to the algo or do you think we will be masters of the algo?
1: I think the, the question for me is, uh, is, will we even know which we are? Right? So it's easy for all of us. That's why I was saying it's easy for all of us to believe we're not slaves in our personal lives and so on. But who knows? How do you tell? Um, so there's enough enough fun dystopian fiction and TV around you know, what possibilities exist. I think they're all in the realm of the possible, Suresh. I think none of those scenarios are you can look at it and say, ah, oh, this is never gonna happen. This could never happen. I think it's we're living in a in a at a time when if you look out, maybe five, 10 years is um, maybe a little too short for it. But if you you know put 20-year access on this it's easy to see how there could be like significant discontinuities you know, over that period. So I only hope we know what's happening.
0: I love that thought, who knows? And I hope we know. Uh, thank you very much uh, TS for spending time on the show. Uh, to our listeners and viewers, that was TS Anil, Group CEO of Monzo, talking to us about how he's seen the world of data and algorithms uh, change over his career and what he sees for the future. Once again, thank you for being on the show TS. Always fun chatting with you, Suresh. Take care. We have new episodes coming out every week, sometimes twice a week. Each will seek to bring a different and fresh perspective to the topic. Please subscribe to the podcast channel and share it widely in your network. I look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Meanwhile, stay safe personally in the age of COVID and stay relevant professionally in the age of AI.